0: This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Lady Diana Spencer married Prince Charles on July 29, 1981, and not long afterwards, she was being immortalized on film in a couple of American telly movies. The public's fascination with Princess Diana has never really gone away, and it is back again with seasons four and five of The Crown and the new movie Spencer, with Kristen Stewart tipped for an Oscar nomination for playing the troubled royal. But what do these screen portrayals tell us about one of the most talked about women of the late 20th century? How has she been presented in life and death? And are any of these films and TV shows worth watching when, in Diana's case, Truth was far more interesting Than fiction, and after all, how can we ever really know what went on behind the palace walls? Giselle Baston is Associate Professor of English at Flinders University and has watched these movies so that you don't have to. Giselle, good morning. Welcome to Overnights.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: So, when did the first Dianas appear on TV or film?
1: They appeared within uh, three months of uh, the Royal Wedding itself in 1981 and uh, within three days of each other. It, and both were released on American broadcasting networks on the understanding, of, of, I've read, that uh, they were not to be shown in Britain. Now, whether or not that was out of concern for the actors'
0: reputations
1: <laughs> or it was some copyright issue, I'm not sure. But um interesting that they did only appear on the american networks and uh it points to a long term long 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 standing reticence in british popular culture to depict the lives of living royals on screen um they they haven't come to that uh conversation very easily uh in fact it was banned pretty much until the 20th century to Certainly, to depict a living monarch on screen, uh, some so royals could have walk-on roles, but they had to be very, very respectfully, you know, treated and and tastefully. The story had to be very tastefully done.
0: Now, I recall that that time in the early eighties was an era when every event was made into a TV movie. There were three major American networks then, and as soon as one of them made a movie about one of these events, another one, one of the other two, would jump in and do it as well, and I think that's what happened with this one, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it is, yes. I think CBS was first, and it certainly did happen on two of the major networks,
0: Okay, so The Royal Romance of Charles and Diana was 1982, and one of the things when casting a royal or someone to play a royal, is it does help if you have a real royal. Catherine Oxenberg, she was the daughter of the Princess of Yugoslavia. So she was a natural to play Lady Di, wasn't she?
1: Yes, and that was very tied up in the promotion of her in the role at the time. The the royal connection plus her physical you know, comparisons mm-hmm. to to David's face and, and style and so on. But the fact that... Uh, an actor with royal connections could perhaps bring some panache to this role. Was uh, very much profiled at the time, wow. and she appeared. In one of the ones. she appears in that film you just mentioned, but also in Unhappily Ever After, uh, one of the films that came out after the Andrew Morton book uh, on Diana, her true story. Mm. So Trin Oxenberg got to play her as the as the blushing virginal aristocrat and then she comes back as the unhappy woman beset by marital woes mm. and it's she's picked up one script and just sort of added a, a you know a coda as it were in the second film
0: so in that film with these dueling royal films of the early 80s. A couple of Oscar winners. There's Stuart Granger. He played Prince Philip. I don't think he did win an Oscar. But Ray Moland is in it. He was an Oscar winner. And Olivia de Havilland playing the Queen Mother. The rest of the yes. cast is pretty ordinary. But Ray Moland, that was a strange role.
1: Well, by the 19, early 1980s, I don't think Ray Moland was getting as much work as he would have done since the you know many, many decades of his career before. And maybe he just wanted some quick cash and thought, well, no-one will see this, so who cares? But uh, it certainly was a sense of getting, I think, the producers of the films, by getting their de Havillands and their Milans, were thinking that they bring some Hollywood royalty, if you like, to, to the casting, and that might, again, give their productions a little bit of a fizz, you know, the idea that we're in the presence of quality, apparently. Mm. Because you couldn't just get anybody playing Prince Philip or the Queen Mother. You had to get someone who was known to be of good reputation themselves, at least on screen.
0: Well, in Charles and Diana, A Royal Love Story, the other film at that time, Christopher Lee, the great horror star, he played <laughs> Prince Philip. Uh, Mona Washburn, <laughs> who else would play the Queen Mother but the great Mona Washburn? Um, there was Caroline Bliss as Lady Di, she was a model and i love this rod taylor the great australian actor is edward a. Dean, who was the queen's private secretary and i think at this point was prince charles's private secretary certainly there's a
1: certain portentousness isn't there in having christopher lee as prince philip <laughs> Uh, I think Diana would have, you know, really come to identify with that casting towards the end of life or towards the
0: end of her marriage. Well, I will get to that in just a moment. Uh, David Langton was also in it. He played Mr. Bellamy in Upstairs, Downstairs. So he brought that sort of kind of style, that certain upper class aristocracy. With the role of Earl Mountbatten or Lord Mountbatten. How did they tell the story? You say it's sort of a young and virginal beauty captured the attention of a dashing prince. They get married and they got married and lived happily ever after, didn't they?
1: Sadly not. But in the films, uh, they're told very episodically. You get uh, glimpses of the, the so-called tomboy Diana, who's, as she the, the princess described herself to Morton, a very unglamorous lady at the time, who was just into wearing country corduroys and big jumpers and walking and in both films she's kind of just wandering around the Isle of the Strait, her father's estate, just looking a bit lost. And but there's you sense that there's enormous potential for this young, yet as yet unpolished queen to be. But she meets the prince and he's always struck by something about her freshness and her gaiety, um, because he's already in a relationship with her, or has had been with her older sister. Uh, so you see her from going to, you know, to from unfussy young lady to life in London as a, an assistant in a childcare centre. And you see glimpses of her having dinner with friends and just enjoying her single London life. But then, cavoom, uh, there's Charles and suddenly the wigs get slightly blonder and their clothes get a bit flashier. and They pretty much share the same storylines and, and then both storylines were based on the very scant information that they had about Charles and Diana. For indeed, you know, Charles and Diana, according to Diana, only met on about 13 occasions before their engagement. Now, some of those occasions could have involved a week of, you know, being together, but they didn't really know each other very well. And certainly the public and the press knew very, very little about her. So the movies, as a consequence, had very little to go on and so with the little information that they had that, you know, say they knew Diana loved working with children, that she had wanted to be a ballerina and was very fond of dance and that she'd grown up in a big, enormous, posh house, they this is pretty much all they knew. And so the films tend to just string together the bare minimum of what they've got with clothes that look like the ones that she was wearing and all of those snapshots that the the press were catching or taking of her on the streets of London as she walked to and from her work. So they had what she looked like. She was a photograph, but they didn't quite know how to put her into motion, as it were. She's a very two-dimensional figure that just seems to be moved from setting to setting with some stock dialogue. And of course, the lead up to the marriage where it will all be lovely you do get scenes of her and charles sort of you know maybe drinking eggnog in front of open fireplaces and getting to know each other a bit uh but certainly no suggestion of any physicality other than holding hands and walking past ponds with swans on them things like that it's daytime romance tv you know fair it's um it's it's disposable television certainly
0: and that's the way it's designed to be. It's not designed to be an Oscar-winning film. It's designed to be the movie of the week. You watch it, you feel like you know a little bit more about her, which, of course, we didn't, because we don't know too much more about the build-up to their marriage and how they met and all that until we watch The Crown, season four, where it goes into a lot more detail We'll get to that in a moment. Giselle Baston is our guest as we talk about the way that Princess Diana has been depicted on screen because you say, well, they didn't have much to go on for those first couple of films, but by the time the next lot of films come out, then we've got a lot to go on because a couple of uh, pretty well-informed books have been written about her.
1: Well, that's right. And um, uh, I've said elsewhere that, in effect, um, the Morton book Diana, her true story, is a, is Diana's scripting of her own life. I mean, she spent many hours speaking into a tape recorder, making the tapes for the Morton book. And he has quoted her really accurately in many, many parts of the books, because those tapes are now uh, widely available. They've been put together as a documentary that's shown on the Netflix streaming channel. You hear actual lines that you can remember reading in her true story. They had in many ways the script already written for them. They had to imagine what life must have looked like behind palace doors because of course they had not been glimpses of that. Because Charles and Diana, for all intents and purposes, was still turning up in public and smiling at everybody and opening hospital wards. I mean that was still going on while this book had come out. And so they had to imagine what is an enraged Diana supposed to look like because they'd only ever seen her smile. How does she sound for example, one of the things they really grappled with, even by the 1990s, is what does she sound like? Because, I mean, you know, hundreds of people around Britain and the world had heard her launch ships and open and visit hospital wards, but all the actresses kind of have to guess at how she sounds. And that's been something I've really noticed as a point of difference between the early 90s ones and the, the very recent ones is they're starting to get her voice right. Uh, and again, it's about at different periods they've just had different access to different materials to bring uh, her dimensions onto the screen. But by the night, the early nineties ones, they've got a far more dramatic story to tell. But they still tell it in a fairly stilted, uh, episodic way. Mm. And again, the films are very low budget. and And by the nineties, apart from having the Morton book. Uh, They also, uh, the films were able to use Diana's own investment in her love of soap opera. She, you know, she devoured shows like Dynasty and Dallas she devoured british soap operas like eastenders and she would sit on the hospital beds talking to sick people and say hey did anybody see crossroads last night oh, dear. and she got these storylines and those storylines very much came to inform how she talked about her own marriage her own life and so the biopics go right okay well we have our mise en scene we can make it look like dynasty because in real life, Diana had started to, you know, she was starting to be called Dynasty Die. And so they had a whole range of, you know, costumes for her that made for really good lunchtime romance television and soap opera.
0: And of course, Catherine Oxenberg had been in Dynasty. which was perfect.
1: I know, that's right. It's amazing how many of them turn up here, there and the other. and An actor might appear as Charles in one film, but he might be cousin in another. You know, one of the actors in one of the films who plays Charles' best friend is actually married to Sarah Chatto, who is Princess Margaret's daughter. Uh, I've mentioned Serena Scott-Thomas, who plays Diana in the 93, her true story film. Uh, she turns up as Carol Middleton, uh, the Duchess of Cambridge's mother, in a later film about William and Kate.
0: So Daniel Chatto was uh, that, that you was referring Chateau, yes. to. If anyone can't remember him, uh, there's the final scene in To the Manor Born where they're back at the manor. Penelope Mm -hmm. Keith has married Peter Bowles and they are there and they're having a party. And there's this kind of Hooray Henry type who is there stealing the cigars and not even Mm -hmm. knowing whose party he is at. That's uh, Daniel Chatto. So, yeah, he didn't play too many roles, but you know, they, when they need somebody from the aristocracy, he's the guy they call. Um, <laughs> You've done your research. Oh, Very no. I re- well, when you mentioned him, I remembered, hang on a minute, I've seen that guy, and I remember looking him up, wondering who he was when I watched that, because it's on all the time to The Man of Born, and I, hmm. I looked that up last year perhaps, to see who he was and was amazed that he married Sarah or Chato as she became. Yeah. I wonder when Princess Diana watched Dynasty, did she think, oh, yeah, there's that uh, woman, that actress who played me in that movie? Oh, of course she would,
1: yeah. And she would absolutely have seen those early biopics. Mm-hmm. She would have devoured it, loved everything about herself. She over images of herself. And this idea that they, they try to ignore it is, I think, a complete myth. So she would have adored it. I mean, just as there are, it's said, it is said, that Camilla loves the crown. <laughs> she tunes in and watches it, but Charles
0: wouldn't. Well, he doesn't come out of it very well, and we will get to that in a moment. There are a couple of those films in the wake of the divorce. We've got Princess in Love, Uh, Diana, a tribute to the people's princess after she died. Diana, last days of a princess. I've forgotten most of these ones. And Charles and Camilla, whatever love means. And are they being made for the big screen? Are they being made to stream? Or this is probably before streaming for some of them. Or are they being put on TV? Who's making these films? They're
1: made for TV, all of them. It's remarkable how many of those sort of Totally forgotten, Diana's are played by Australians. I mean, um, well, apart from the cinema release, Diana, Naomi Watts yep. was born in Britain, but she's uh, also been an Australian citizen. But also um, Amy Seacombe, I think, was uh, possibly Australian. And Genevieve O'Reilly is one of them. She's the last days of the princess, and she's Australian. Hmm. And, of course, we're about to see Elizabeth Debicki
0: yes.
1: in C. of the crown. She's Australian.
0: Diana, the movie that you mentioned with Naomi Watts, which is about her romance with Hazna Khan, the surgeon, the heart surgeon. What do you make of that one? I know that was kind of pretty roundly criticised. I don't think it was that all that bad, but maybe it tells us that even if you've got a much bigger budget than these other ones, you're not going to get a much better film.
1: Or it suggests that the bigger the budget and profile, the more people are going to see it and therefore they're going to object I mean, I'll get to the Naomi Watts film in a minute, but on that particular topic, I, I have found it very interesting that the crown is just being torn limb from limb with, with people saying, "How dare they, you know, present this stuff as historical accuracy when it's clearly made up and it gives the public a distorted image of the of the royal story and so on and so forth." And 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 when I come across that kind of outcry every time they launch a season of the crown i think you know i think of all those charles and diana films such as the ones we have been talking about and no one said a word but it was because it was a different audience they were so low budget they they slipped under the radar and they were not even thought of as having serious as needing serious attention so by the time you take the story to the big screen naomi watts's diana is uh started to get more picked upon, and I've noticed that the, the critical voices certainly go up with, with the cost of the budget, no doubt about it. Naomi Watts is a, a very capable act- actress. She's doesn't do the worst Diana I've ever seen. I think it was more that um, it just wasn't doing anything all that different, and while it was sort of felt accurate, it wasn't, for some people, it wasn't Emma Corrin by The Crown. And I think it m- may have just been because the story was Again, stuff that everybody knew, whereas by the time that Peter Morgan takes on the story, soon after in The Crown, he does what he's done with all of the writing of The Crown, is to put Diana's story against the social realities and brutalities of whichever Britain they're representing at the time. And so her story is taken just from the this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and Morgan in The Crown gives it, I guess, more perspective and dimension. So. The Watts Diana film still hadn't made it to that point. It just looked like a very expensive version of what we had seen in the early 90s.
0: How do you feel about the way that they have been presented in the Crown? It seems to me that Princess Diana is being presented in a much more favourable light than Prince Charles.
1: Yes, and I think, uh, again, because that suits perhaps suits the Crown's agenda, which has... Been fascinated by the function of the monarchy, but at the same time critical of aspects of the, the pressures that it puts on the private person to live the public role. People within the creative industries are perhaps more likely to take the Diana side because she's she was such a useful uh, figure for their storytelling. I mean, she's perfect for, you know, the the, the story turned into myth to take on these mythic structures. And she was just more interesting and visually appealing for filmmakers than Charles. And so that together with her own really, really candid and lengthy discussions that she gave to the press about herself have just given so much more material than Charles, who will forever just look like the cuff-tugging self who's really rather dull. Hmm. And he makes for better television. And I think that helps them so they will take her her side
0: i think uh, prince philip comes out of it rather favorably as well which is not the way that his role was depicted in real life at the time when uh, diana died um, now we get to the movie spencer which is in cinemas uh, with kristen stewart possibly oscar winner oscar nominee when they're announced in a couple of weeks time what do you make of spencer they couldn't call it diana we already had a movie called diana Uh, They've called it Spencer, and it's about the Christmas weekend, sort of in the year before she and Charles decide to split up.
1: Yes, it's more. It's set in 91, Christmas 91, but I think it's probably more appropriate to Christmas 92. But anyway, that's just splitting hairs, and uh, people have begun to split those hairs. But that's beside the point. It's, It's fascinating, though. I mean, I went in thinking... I didn't expect very much. I mean, there was this American actress who uh, I thought had, I mean, the little I knew about her was that she'd only ever played vampires. (laughs) I'd seen her as Joan Jett, you know. in the Runaways, And I didn't really have any opinions of her either way, but I thought she, uh, everything seemed to be lining up to make it a really difficult gig for her. And... uh, I can only say I was quite surprised. I was pleasantly surprised at at what she manages to pull off or what perhaps Pablo Lorraine, the um, the director, has drawn out of her for the role. And he's given her a much more uh, of an informed landscape in which to do her Diana. And I think that's why we can talk about even being nominated for an Oscar, Diana getting nominated for an Oscar, that's just extraordinary when we think about the other films we've been talking about. However, you know, if enough money is spent on it and an actor gets it a bit right, I mean, biopics do tend to do very well for actors with things like Oscars. There's a very high percentage of best films do go to films about real lives. So, yes, Spencer, I thought, um, is beautifully, beautifully filmed and, and photographed and they use the Norfolk countryside, which is blanketed in frost and you can just feel the internal freeze of the life in this family. And it's told very much, again, from the perspective of Diana as she talked about her life in the royal system, especially at that time. She hates it. She can't bear the family and they are highly suspicious and disapproving of her. Someone said to me who has seen the film, they said, well, I had no idea the royal family was so awful. And I said, well, we don't know what they're like, but what you're being presented with is very much Diana's perspective at the time, uh, where she was psychologically, emotionally, and everywhere at that time. And so, uh, yes, the whole film is filtered through this kind of grim, I have referred to it as almost gothic style, and uh, many people have likened scenes in it and the use of lighting to films such as The Shining, uh, that she's sort of kind of captive in this frozen-in mausoleum of a place that she is just starting to go, you know, slowly mad in. It's pretty brave to depict pit the princesses being so unravelling at this time.
0: What do you think is now the future of Diana on film? Have we seen enough for now, or do you think we'll see more of them? Obviously, there's uh, at least another season of The Crown, which will involve her death, but what about beyond that? Do you think we'll see big-screen depictions of her life again?
1: I'm sure we will, but I can't help but think that even the writers of season five of The Crown uh, must be, you know scratching around behind the scenes thinking, crikey-marky, you know, because Spencer has pushed the envelope a bit. It's uh, just sort of said, all right, we're going to go full on gothic horror with telling Diana's story. And so the crown could actually risk looking a little bit, well, hmm, more same-same of what they're doing. I'm sure we'll keep seeing Diana's uh, because they're certainly... To use a contemporary cliche, there's certainly an appetite for seeing pictures of the royals. I mean, the um, but the story will they'll have to find new angles, I think, because people are devouring this stuff. Many people are devouring all of this stuff, and so they'll be looking not to how well a film or a streamed telly movie goes, but how well it compares to the others. It's a it's sort of big business. It's encouraging that Prince Harry has defended the crown, saying, you know, of course it's not all true, but it's um, it's a lot more accurate than most of the newspaper stories I read about it. So
0: <laughs> That's a very good point.
1: I can't really predict where Diana will go on screen now uh, or if maybe there'll be another complete shift when the current queen dies and it, perhaps it will become even more gloves off with what they're willing to depict, I don't know. Or maybe it will just have to end up like after so many adaptations of, say, Pride and Prejudice, that the only place they had to go was to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. <laughs> so this, they might just have to do something really stupid.
0: Princess Diana and Zombies. But when that happens, Giselle, will talk to you about it. Thank you so much for your time.
1: <laughs> You're more than welcome.
0: Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio 80.